welcome into TYT's The Conversation. It is your host, Adrian Lawrence. And as many of you know, we are coming off of the nation's third public hearing conducted by the 1-6 committee. That is that House Congressional Committee that has been convened to investigate the January 6th attack on the US Capitol. And the results of all three hearings have so far been eye-opening. But let's get into the revelations of really what they mean. And here to help us with that is Grace Panetta. She is a senior politics reporter at Insider, and she particularly focuses on election administration and voting rights. Thank you so much for joining us, Grace. Thank you for having me. Yes, so first, we recently learned that Donald Trump was directly involved in a scheme to put forward what um, those fake electors in states won by Joe Biden and that the Republican National Committee really joined in helping Trump arrange these slates of electors. So for those of us who didn't watch, really to what extent did we learn that Trump was involved? Yes, we learned a lot of new information today about how high up this plot to compose these phony slates of electors went, right? It wasn't just Rudy Giuliani or Johnny Spinner, these fringe figures. It was Trump on the phone with the chairwoman of the RNC, Ronna McDaniel talking about it. The Trump campaign apparently wanting someone to fly the fake Wisconsin slates of electors to DC. An aide to a Wisconsin senator texting an aide to Mike Pence on January 6th asking to transmit these fake electors that had no weight whatsoever in law. So we really did learn new information about how far up it went. Gosh, it does sound like this This has been eye opening for a number of Americans. But unfortunately, I don't necessarily know that it convinced a lot of them, but that's in my own personal opinion. But I do know that we have learned a considerable amount of information in terms of who was in this conspiracy really to overthrow democracy. And one of the other things we learned is that the 1-6 committee, what they did is they revealed that the GOP speaker of the House in Arizona testified that he did not want to be used as a pawn by President Trump. And as a result, he backed out, refusing at least two pleas that were presented by the president. The Arizona speaker, Rusty Bowers is his name. Well, he said that you are asking me to do something against my oath and I will not break my oath. Do you think that this type of response from the state electorates or the state individuals who were in charge and really charged with overseeing the process that this was the anomaly or do you think this was the majority? Well, I mean, it's a good question. And I think the important distinction though is who was sort of a crucial voice or a crucial force against this plot to subvert the election. I think it was in terms of elected officials, it was the majority of elected officials in these states, but the minority was very, very vocal. What was important was the clarity with which Speaker Bowers spoke saying, this is my oath to the constitution, this is my duty. And then the Georgia officials talking about here are the numbers, here are the facts. So I think that clarity from those people in those key positions is what matters at the end of the day. Absolutely, it seems to be something that maybe a number of people in those states particularly that they will find to be persuasive. But this is something that I think that a lot of people who did not trust Trump to begin with, could easily see him have engaged in. And I think it was good to hear it from these leaders in the GOP, especially at the state level. And one of the third things we learned is that the committee really seemed to stress that Trump didn't have any evidence whatsoever when it came to the widespread election fraud allegation and claims that he and his cronies really pushed. And at least Rudy Giuliani himself admitted that very fact based on the testimony that we heard. 
How do you think that this information is really resonating when it comes to the American people who may have initially believed the big lie? Well, it's it's tough to say what effect the hearings are having so far, but I think you know if nothing else, if this doesn't change people's minds, um, maybe nothing else will. I also think you know people hear what they want to hear. Um, not maybe not everyone whose mind could be changed is maybe watching the hearing, so it's hard to say what impact is having. But the information is being laid out in a really clear and also a really compelling to watch manner by the committee. So if this more than anything could have the power to do that, but it's too early to say. Yeah, and and something that I think hopefully may possibly be redeeming as I see some polls initially and when I wake up and open Twitter, they seem to be more indicative of people wanting to see prosecution for Trump and his cronies, which is cool in that they wanna actually see what is indicia of a democratic society actually coming into play where people uphold laws and people hold people accountable for their behavior. And so hopefully more of that will be the case because that's something that at least I myself would like to see because hey, if we say we're a nation of laws, I'd love to see those laws actually implemented and enforced. But again, may just be me. But another one of the things we saw was about people who saw the video of election officials and workers testifying. They testified to facing death threats, severe harassment due to the big lie. There was a woman named Gabrielle Sterling. She is a Georgia election official, for example, and she testified about the threats that she faced. Yet Trump and his cronies, knowing of these things, they didn't care. They continued to push it. And I really never myself believed that Trump cared in particular, and he never seemed to be really a very empathetic person at all. So it's no shock to me, but do you think that Knowing this in any way maybe will impact how people see him. Yeah, the testimony from the two election workers who testified, um, or the one who testified in person, Shay Moss, and her mother, Ruby Freeman, who's some of whose testimony we saw in video, it was really important because it shows the impact on rank and file election workers. You know, figures like Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, Gabe Sterling, his deputy, they became sort of nationally lauded heroic figures. But these lower level rank and file officials who had their lives ruined, you know, really kind of got left behind. So it was important to hear from them. Indeed, and hearing their voice is something that we needed to hear because these individuals are public servants as well. And they ensure that democracy is put into place. And so as far as I'm concerned, from the voices that I heard, I was especially proud, especially from members of the GOP, because it seems that so many of them found it so easy to go ahead and bolster the lie, to continue with it, to uplift someone who is trying to um, you know, really undermine our democracy and if anything, push a coup. But I will also note, and I think you noticed, or you noted Brad Raffensperger, Georgia Secretary of State, Board of Electors. Well, it really seemed that he and his family are also on the receiving end of a lot of threats and very crude, inappropriate forms of harassment. And that's very scary because what he is doing is seems that he is standing up for democracy and doing what is right. And that should be the baseline level, but unfortunately it seems to be something that is quite heroic nowadays. And so knowing that his testimony is coming up or is something that we expect in time, um, what do you expect from that? Well, Raffensperger, when he testified before the, the committee today, he, you know, he's an engineer by trade, so he's always very clear-eyed. 
these, you know, having specific numbers at the ready, specific facts at the ready to go. And, you know, like you mentioned too, with the threats, he is a figure who was not very well known before 2020, but was thrust into the spotlight and could really speak to these things with a lot of power and clarity. And how do you think that his testimony resonated? I mean, I think him and Gabe Sterling to just laying out so clearly the facts and they've had so much practice debunking all of these lies. I, you know, I think it will. I think it will resonate um, in both with the clarity that he laid out about the threats he's faced too. I think that sends a powerful message. Absolutely. And do you think that there was anything particularly eye-opening about what he shared? Because as the committee had noted, there were a lot of people who were completely comfortable pushing the Fifth Amendment. They were completely comfortable saying they didn't know. And yet you would like to hope that an individual who came out in the initial stages without necessarily needing a subpoena to do so, that he would have been very forthcoming. So can you, I guess, give us a succinct version of what he said and what he shared? Yeah, he shared that the 2020 election in Georgia was not stolen. You know, rank and file election workers at the county level, like Shea Moss, like Ruby Freeman, they did their jobs, performed them well, and that Trump and his allies' lives were were lies. And they were falsehoods and not based in anything accurate, and they had an immense amount of damage towards people. Um, and they weren't successful in overturning the election, but they left a lot of damage in their wake. I think was the message. Uh, yes, and that definitely seems to be something that can be quite insightful, especially at this time. And we know that the 1-6 committee will continue in what it's doing, but unfortunately it's running into a number of hurdles. One noting um, at least yesterday that more than 30 witnesses really refused to cooperate with the investigation. And this really does seem to bring into a different perspective the DOJ's refusal to prosecute Mark Meadows and Steve Shavino. For defying congressional subpoenas, which are simply a misdemeanor. Does it change your outlook at all to find out that 30 witnesses essentially wouldn't cooperate? I think, yeah, Cheney, Liz Cheney was definitely making a powerful point and noting that two regular people, rank and file election workers, showed up to testify, but all of these extremely powerful people, former Trump officials, did not. And I think that raises the stakes too for Thursday's hearing, which is about Trump's efforts to manipulate the Department of Justice towards his end. Um, and she sort of set it up a little bit by talking about former White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, and how she wants him to, to testify. So definitely setting that up. Yes, and that's something that we definitely need more of in terms of high ranking people being willing to be exactly who they are behind the curtain as well as in front of it. Because we do understand that these individuals have risen in the rank and thus they see that there is a lot to potentially lose on their behalf. But at the same time, a lot of us have democracy to lose. And we, a number of us weren't necessarily winning to begin with. And so it could become even worse. And knowing that Trump fully probably plans to rerun again in 2024 is very scary for a number of us. So actually having people who are in positions of power using their voice to speak truth can be game changing. And so I definitely hope that they change the game. But for those out there who want to follow more of what you do, where can they find you on social media? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Grace underscore Panetta, that's P-A-N-E-T-T-A. And you can find my articles on businessinsider.com. Fantastic, that's Grace Panetta, senior politics reporter at Insider with that particular focus on elections administration and voting rights. So thank you so much for joining us, Grace. Thank you for having me. 
Welcome back, it is Adrian Lawrence and many of us have seen gas prices, prices of food and all other prices really surge and it is bringing a fair amount of concern out there. But fortunately, we have a gentleman with insight here. That is Dave Leventhal and he oversees insiders, political investigations and enterprise reporting. And he writes about the nexus of politics, policy and the power in the nation's capital. So thank you so much for joining us, David. Hey, my pleasure to be with you. Yes, yeah, so we're seeing historic rises in costs here. Can you please tell everybody if you can, of course, at bottom, why is this happening? <laughs> well, I mean, we, you know, might want to get a whole team of economy professors in to actually get to the bottom of truly why this is happening. And, and the short answer is is that it's not one reason. It's not two reasons. It's a multitude of reasons and it stems from spending habits on a personal level to the most macro and global issues such as the war in Ukraine and the COVID pandemic, government spending, supply chain issues. You could go on and on and on and all of that does factor in to the current conditions that we're facing right now and that all Americans are facing very acutely in their pocketbooks. Absolutely, and I saw a great meme today that went across social media in terms of seeing gas prices at $7.11 and it was at a 7-Eleven. At a 7-Eleven, right. Yeah. Exactly, and people are bringing up the fact that, hey, we finally had this realization of it's been reached, we have 7-Eleven. And it's something very scary for a number of people because it's not necessarily a case where people, especially when wages have an increase, that they can continue to make these payments to be able to do these everyday activities like being able to drive somewhere. So I guess where should we start? Well, I might suggest not starting with gas. I mean, gasoline is, it's the one thing where you drive down the street and there's literally like a neon sign staring you back in the face, telling you the price of the thing that you're using to drive down that street. But when you think about childcare costs, Healthcare costs, those are the ones that, that don't have flashing lights, uh, but yet can in a situation like this, economically speaking, be the ones that can be the most damaging. I mean, a dollar today just simply doesn't buy as much as a dollar a year ago or even a few months ago. And when you have a high inflationary type of situation as we're experiencing right now, that, that manifests itself in lots of toxic ways that go well beyond gas. That's not to underplay gas, especially if you run a small business or you're in a situation where you, you're gonna be using 50, 100, $200 of gas per week or per month. Or for that matter, if you own a big business and you rely on that to get your trucks back and forth or whatever the case may be. But it does go far, far beyond that. And for consumers, they have to be looking also to at lots of those kind of quiet, silent costs that, that you just don't see and hear as much of, but yet could really hurt you because of the situation that we're in right now more than ever. Absolutely, and I myself, I've been to the grocery store and seen things that I'm used to being 250, being 275 or being $3. Sure. And, that, and that really adds up at the end of the day. And I know that we've seen the GOP pointing fingers at Biden and I'd like to assume that, hey, I can't trust the GOP. So I don't necessarily know where they're going with this, but I'm going to assume Biden isn't the cause. But I guess if we're looking to point fingers or trying to figure things out, and I know you mentioned there are a lot of causes in effect, I guess, what should we tell people? 
Well, one thing to know is that the President of the United States, even though Republicans are going to do everything that they can in a political context here in the 2022 midterms to tie this to Joe Biden, to put this on Joe Biden. Joe Biden, or for that matter, any President of the United States is limited in what they can do. We don't live in a command economy. This isn't the Soviet Union of the 1930s. So as a result, the economy is gonna kind of do its own thing regardless of what the government does. Now, that being said, Joe Biden is still going to try. And we already saw that just this week when he's basically saying, hey, look, we're gonna do a gasoline tax holiday and give short-term relief temporarily to motorists so that when they go on their summer vacations and we we travel to where we're going to travel, instead of that cost being 7-Eleven a gallon, well, it might be 6-Eleven or if you're lucky enough to be in an area where it's more around $5, it might be 450. So that's going to be something, but yet the price is gonna be paid for that. Where does that gasoline tax money go? Well, it primarily goes to transportation projects, building highways, repairing them, transit. So yes, you get short-term relief, but you five years or 10 years down the line, get less of that type of stuff that is very important. And you'll remember that 10 years from now, I suppose, when you hit a big pothole and have to pay $500 for the repairs. But Joe Biden's gonna be doing things because in essence, he's getting criticized left and right, including from some Democrats that he's just been too silent and that he hasn't been as proactive as he needs to be. So expect going forward, Adrian, a louder, more proactive, more active Joe Biden when it comes to the specific issue of inflation, which is one issue among many, many economic issues that we're all facing right now and that are going to factor into the 2022 midterms. Absolutely, and I love that you brought up infrastructure and transportation because I know that's been something Pete Buttigieg has been talking about, particularly as it comes to air travel. And as someone who is coming to you from a hotel room and had multiple flights to get here, I know how incredibly important that is in part because, hey, it costs me, what, $500 more than it usually would to get to my destination. And that's something that we're also seeing when it comes to the rise in costs and prices. So it seems that, at least from my end, that it's in the control of corporate America. Maybe they're trying to make a little bit more because they lost a little bit more when it came to the pandemic. It definitely seems that something is going on, but it's not necessarily in the favor of the American people. What are your thoughts? Well, some progressives along these lines and others have said, well, hey, wait, it, it's the very, very wealthy individuals in this country or corporations that are locking up a lot of value that are in essence, uh, they're, they're making tons of money. Some businesses are not suffering at all. You look at say the meatpacking businesses, uh, you look at transportation businesses and they're doing by and large really, really well. So as a result, Uh, There are ideas that are floating around, some of which are probably more realistic than others, to do a couple of things. Number one, tax profits more. Uh, Number two, tax investments more. So capital gains tax is is an issue that you're hearing a lot of too. And then kind of on the other end of the spectrum, price controls. Now that's something we don't hear a whole lot of, but there is actually recent precedent in the sense that when we were right in the initial offing of the COVID-19 pandemic in early 2020, Donald Trump's administration put some price controls on products that were deemed to be essential and necessary to fighting the pandemic, like 
and 95 masks and other types of medical supplies. So you have some progressives saying, well, hey, why can't we do that with other things like food? Like when you go to the grocery store, if a price of milk is just simply too expensive for somebody to afford, well, why can't the government step in? Now, there are ramifications to that. And there would be potentially problems with that happening too. But these are some of the ideas that in a situation where people are getting a little desperate and there are real political considerations to consider that you start talking about in a way that you wouldn't be talking about otherwise. Absolutely, and it seems that a number of people are having this conversation in part because, as we mentioned, it's hitting people's paychecks and people's abilities to feed their family, to pay rent. And we already knew that we were in a housing crisis to begin with. And it seems like there are a number of conversations that need to be had, and yet there's not a number of actions that are taken, unfortunately, especially when we have this you know, elected leadership that is supposed to be looking out for the people that's not necessarily doing that. And so when it comes to political investigations, which I know is something you specialize in, and really looking at who is looking out for the people, what are you finding? Well, I think one issue that we're looking at and that everyone should be paying close attention to in the next couple of months is, is there going to be another a big time trillion dollar type of expenditure by the federal government. Now we had several major expenditures by the federal government that were very much tied to the COVID-19 pandemic. But Joe Biden has a whole social agenda that still is alive and being talked about. And Democrats are trying to get people like Senator Joe Manchin, who they've been fighting with this whole time to get on board, to get the requisite votes, to push something forward. But if you're spending a trillion dollars or $1.5 trillion in an inflationary environment such as this, then that type of government spending could actually, in some economists' perspective or from some economists' perspective, exacerbate inflation and actually make the problem worse instead of making it better, even if it would do lots of potentially good things for the country. So expect that to be a particularly poignant, important, dramatic, and in you know very controversial storyline as Democrats and Republicans fight it out all the way into early November. Oh, absolutely, and it seems that the fight, as far as I'm concerned, I find it to be all just theatrics. Because no matter what people's labels happen to be, it seems that their politics or their incentives to actually look out for people seem to be very more self-centered than anything. I think it's more rare that people actually look out for the people that they are supposed to serve. But again, that's just my thought and my theory. But in terms of knowing also that we are going to have a potential shift when it comes to the leadership coming up, do you think that that in any way is playing a role in how these elected leaders currently in power see themselves. Absolutely, Adrian. I mean, we <laughs> we have a situation where the Democrats are just holding on to the House and the Senate by the skin of their teeth, and they are at grave risk of losing either the House or the Senate, or frankly, both the House and the Senate. The Democrats know that. There's no getting around it. So yeah, they're gonna be scrambling in a major, major way to try to appeal to people's pocketbooks and sense of economics in a way that is going to get them number one to the polls if they are Democrats and potentially tamp down Republican excitement to go out and elect 
Republicans. It's a very, very tenuous time for Democrats. And you gotta run on something. If the economy is bad and everything's going in the wrong direction, then that is fuel for Republicans to just beat the heck out of you and say, hey, Democrats had their chance. They blew it and the Republicans are coming in, we will do better. And that's really what this is going to come down to in a major, major way over the next several months. Yes, and that definitely seems to be something that a number of people need to bear in mind, especially when it comes time to vote. And I wanna thank you so much for joining us, Dave Leventhal. He oversees insiders, political investigations and enterprise reporting. Thanks so much for joining us, Dave. Hey, thanks everyone.